Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing water, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They purchased from among the men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. 
take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, on your behalf, I'd like to say a special thank you to Anne for standing so wonderfully in the gap this morning and blessing us uh, with the music. And also to Andrew for that very stirring and uh, pertinent testimony. Uh, I've asked Andrew if he would come and do a prison Sunday for us in the new year. I don't know whether they'll let him out on parole, but I hope they will. And uh, let's try and get a little bit more inside the ministry that goes on so wonderfully in Polsmoor. And a few weeks ago, we had a, a members' meeting where we made a couple of adjustments to the Constitution, and the revised copy of the Constitution is available on the table over there. Unfortunately, I forgot to ask the printers to put on second edition, so I've had to mark a red dot on the Constitution in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, do please throw your old one away, because we gather under the sign, the red dot. And then um, on Thursday night, I had a lovely Zoom call with Jomo up in Kenya. Some of you will remember Jomo. And Jomo and his wife, Anne, are serving in the Diocese of Marzabit in Kenya. Uh, no less than 60 congregations where they are doing the young adults ministry. Uh, when I spoke to him, he was 800 miles away from home uh, leading a, a young adults conference. And it seems that a number of young men are coming forward for training for pastoral ministry. So please remember Jomo and Anne in your prayers. Uh, we're very thankful uh, for everything that God is doing through them. And it was just so lovely to see them uh, on Thursday night. Good. Well, I hope you've got your Bibles open at Revelation 14. It will certainly be a help to me if you have. And as always, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to meet with us in his word. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. We pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands so that as we read about you in the pages of this marvelous book, our hearts might be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love, our minds might be filled with your truth, and our lives might be equipped to serve and glorify your name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, a friend of mine was recently asked to give a number of uh, Bible talks in a posh school. And uh, the first talk was a fairly simple message from one of the Gospels. But um, afterwards, one of the teachers was obviously very offended, and uh, he said to my friend, I wish you hadn't used that word, sin. Uh, couldn't you just have said, we've fallen short of our potential? 
That, I think, would be a fairly typical reaction from many people in Cape Town today. Uh, inside and outside the churches, the assumption is that we're basically very, very nice people. Uh, there are, yes, uh, one or two rotten apples who should probably be removed from society and sent to Baltimore. Uh, but they're the minority, and uh, the rest of us are essentially terribly nice. And uh, if there's room for Christianity at all in our culture, then it's got to be a Christianity that says, well done, everyone. Uh, you're really very nice. Uh, here are a couple of suggestions to make you just a little bit nicer. We don't want anybody, however, to feel offended. People who think like that really hate the book of Revelation. Uh, some of them will say it's a dangerous book, uh, the product of a deranged mind. Because, you see, this book claims to be drawing back the curtain on spiritual reality in order to show us what's actually going on behind the scenes. So in chapters 12 and 13... Uh, if you remember, we've seen the evil trinity. Do you remember that? We saw a dragon, who is Satan, and two beasts representing Antichrist authority and Antichrist influence. And of course, for most people, this kind of language sounds incredibly alien. It's so out of place. They say, you know, we want nothing to do with this. Well, here's a question. Which is more in tune with biblical Christianity and the teaching of Jesus? Is it the kind of Christianity that says we're all very nice? Or is it the teaching of the book of Revelation? Yes, this is a unique book. Uh, it's a unique kind of literature that communicates its messages in pictures and symbols. But its message is not unique. Because, of course, when we discover what these pictures actually mean, we find that they're exactly the same things that Jesus speaks about in the rest of the Bible. It's sin. It's salvation. It's good and evil. It's God and Satan. And so on. But here's another question. As we think of these two very different understandings of the world, these two different religions, that is, comfortable Christianity, if I can put it like that, on the one hand, and the book of Revelation on the other, which one is more in tune with reality? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, um, I think actually what you're calling comfortable Christianity is much closer to my day-to-day -day experience. And I guess for many people in Cape Town, life, particularly in the southern suburbs, is fairly comfortable and it's reasonably civilized. And you see, for them, this language of Satan and, and beasts, well, it just doesn't seem to fit. But hang on. For a moment, will you take a longer view? Look back down the ages of history for a moment, and then ask which is more in tune with reality. Think back to the Holocaust, or the killing fields, apartheid, or the genocide in Rwanda, or the wars in South Sudan, 
or the corruption that's crippling so many countries across Africa, when you think about those things, is it honestly enough to say, yes, I think we human beings have fallen just a little bit short of our potential? Surely, horrors like that demand a very different kind of language, don't they? They surely demand, actually, the kind of language we find in the book of Revelation. And we don't only need to take a longer view. Let me invite you to take a broader view as well. Because there are many, many Christians alive in the world today who are trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, their lives are in constant danger. They're constantly at risk, either of being killed or put in jail, or being marginalized in society, simply for being Christian. Now, my dear friends, you can be absolutely sure that many of those believers, when they read the book of Revelation, find that it explains their day-to-day -day experience perfectly. Take a longer view. Take a broader view. Friends, take a deeper view. Look deep inside yourself. If you're like me, you can probably look at most of your friends and you see a nice, respectable exterior, but you're not fooled by that because you know what's going on inside your heart just as I know what's going on inside mine. So ask yourself, is it an accurate description of me simply to say I fail to live up to my potential? Or does the reality of what I've thought and said and done demand much stronger language? Three or four years ago, you may remember, there was a, a series of trials in Germany of men who had served as guards in Nazi concentration camps in World War II. By the time the trials happened and were put on television, these men were in their 90s. What was so disturbing, I think, about those trials was that as those very old men stumbled into the witness box, you suddenly realized that at the end of the day, they looked just like ordinary human beings. They hadn't been living demonic lives for the previous 70 years. They'd just been ordinary husbands, fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers in one case. And yet, at one point in their lives, they had done the most horrendous things. And the point is, that could be me. So this very stark language in the book of Revelation, I think, is absolutely necessary when we take a longer, broader, and deeper look at the realities in our world. One of the things I really love about the Bible is that it tells it like it is. It's absolutely realistic. There is good and evil in the world. But I also love the optimism of the because it tells me that Satan and evil have been decisively defeated through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, you see, the future is not in doubt because the future belongs to Jesus. 
Well, keeping all of that in mind, let's come to Revelation 14. And I want to draw your attention this morning to three pairs in the chapter. Because this chapter shows us, first of all, two humanities. It also shows us two destinies. And it also gives us two appeals. So firstly then, two destinies. Uh, so in verses 3 and 4, there is one humanity, you'll notice, who are singing a new song. Uh, they are the 144,000 who've been redeemed from the earth. Uh, they're those in verse 4 who worship and follow the Lamb. So these are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's another humanity in verse 9. They are those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And these are the people who are in opposition to God and his Christ. Now, friends, in any worldview, any way of understanding the world, a worldview is telling us a story. A worldview is the backdrop against which you and I try to make sense of our own personal lives. And a very common worldview today, whether explicitly acknowledged or just assumed, is the worldview of materialism. Materialism is the belief that if we can't see it, touch it, hear it, or smell it, it doesn't exist. And so the materialist will say, in the beginning there was matter. Matter is all there ever was. Matter is all there ever will be. And according to that worldview, matter produces the complexity of the human personality all by itself. Our sense of right and wrong, our long, longing for love, our hunger for meaning and purpose, all that has been produced by matter entirely by accident. These things are simply, we're told, the byproducts of evolution. They certainly aren't pointing to any greater reality because there is no greater reality. There is no objective good and evil. There is no God. There is no meaning. Just impersonal, amoral matter. But the Bible tells a different story. It says, in the beginning, God. It says that ultimate reality is personal and loving and holy. And human personality reflects that. Because we were made in the image of God to relate to him, to reflect him. And so, you see, our personality is not accidental after all. No, it reflects the reality that lies behind the entire universe. But then the Bible goes on to say that while human beings were made to relate to God, actually, we've turned our backs on him. And suddenly, in Revelation chapter 12, a dragon appears, as if from nowhere. And the rest of the Bible, shows how the devil, in his pride, refuses to submit to God. He wants his own kingdom. 
So the devil seduces humanity to turn away from God and start living for other things. And as we read on, we find that either knowingly or unknowingly, by nature, all of us live in opposition to God. And therefore, Satan has us exactly where he wants us. And so either knowingly or unknowingly, we belong to his kingdom by nature. Now God could, of course, have turned his back on human beings and said, well, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But the God of the Bible is the God of amazing grace, determined not only to rescue humanity, but to rescue the world over which we were placed as rulers, but which got put out of joint when we rebelled against God. God's amazing work of salvation is wonderfully prophesied in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who is the only human being who was not born in an attitude of rebellion towards God. And he stands at the head of a totally new humanity. Because he never disobeyed his father. He never succumbed to those satanic temptations to show himself as better than everybody else. He was in very nature God, but he chose to become a mere human being, as we saw in Philippians. And he perfectly obeyed his father in every detail. So he didn't deserve to face the penalty which the rest of us, frankly, do deserve for our rebellion, which is death. No, but on the cross, he paid the penalty in our place so that those who do trust in him can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. Now, friends, those are the two humanities. And they're described in chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, all scholars uh, worthy of the name agree that the 144,000 who worship him are the 12 tribes of Israel, multiplied by the 12 apostles, multiplied by 1,000, which is simply a very big number. The number is symbolic, and it represents the totality of the people of God throughout the ages. How do we recognize these people? Verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, does that mean that God's kingdom is only open to celibate men? No, it doesn't. No, this is the picture language that we're talking about every single Sunday morning. And here, it's reminding us that in the Bible, to turn away from God is not simply to turn away from a set of impersonal spiritual laws. No, sin is very personal indeed. It's an act of profound betrayal against the one who made us and loved us. And it's often pictured in the Bible as adultery. 
which is, of course, the ultimate betrayal. So what John is saying is that those who belong to the Lamb have repented of their spiritual adultery, and through the Lord Jesus, they've been made pure, and they're faithful to God. So that's one group. The other humanity is described in verse 9. They're those who worship the beast and his image and receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand. Now, in the first century, uh, people saw the beast, the devil, at work through the Roman state, the Roman Empire, and the demand that all citizens should bow down and worship the emperor. That's not our problem. But for us, the beast represents anything in the world that you and I worship instead of God. And of course, what lies behind that is a rejection of God and putting ourselves at the center instead. And you know perfectly well that one of the reasons why we're apparently unable to leave our cell phones alone for more than five minutes is because social media encourages us to think in precisely those terms. Because on Facebook, or my platform of choice, I create the image of me that I want to present to the world, and then I expect all my friends to like it. Does that actually mean that all social media is evil? No, of course it doesn't. We couldn't have wished Elise a happy birthday yesterday without it. But it does kind of lend itself, doesn't it, to the kind of idolatry that John is warning us against here. So are you with me so far? Two humanities. Next, two destinies. In a battle, it's very, very important to know your enemy. And in uh, chapters 12 and 13, we were given, weren't we, a horrific picture of the enemy that we're up against in the spiritual battle that is constantly going on behind the scenes. We saw that last week. But friends, in a battle, if you only focus on the enemy, you'll soon get very discouraged. You'll find yourself thinking the enemy is simply too strong. We're bound to lose. And that's why John here hands his camera away from the enemy and he turns it towards the future. And we've seen this again and again throughout the book. In fact, in this section of the book, instead of a sort of neat chronological account, starting with the resurrection of Jesus and running all the way through to his return, there are in fact a series of visions arranged in parallel. There are actually seven of them. And each vision is giving us a slightly different perspective on the period that we're living in right now in order to press home a slightly different application. So here in chapter 14, we've got another vision of the end of human history. This is where human history is heading. And it's answering for us the question, is the Christian life really worth it? I mean, after all, the pressures and discouragements are unrelenting, aren't they? The scorn, the derision of the world the prosperity of the wicked, as the Bible would put it, the apparent insignificance of the church, is it really worth 
fighting that battle when there are so many casualties and so much suffering along the way? And John's reply is, yes, it very definitely is. Look at the end. Look at the destinies of these two humanities. For a start, consider God's people in verses 1 to 5. John looks, you'll notice, and there was the lamb standing. Now think about that. The lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was hung on a cross and then his dead body was laid in a tomb, which of course must have been the moment when the devil thought he'd won, but God raised him. And now, here he is, standing, very much alive. Where is he standing? He's standing on Mount Zion, which is the new Jerusalem. It's God's city in Revelation 21. We'll get there eventually. And in that great chapter, John looks and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it is the perfect city. That is the destiny for all those whom God will redeem. It is humanity restored and the world restored under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with him are 144,000 with the name of the Lamb and the Father on their foreheads. They're not worshipping the beast. And then John hears beautiful music and, and a chorus with a vast multitude singing a new song. At the end of verse 3, we're told that nobody knows that song except the redeemed. Most of us, I guess, this morning may be able to remember a time when we could not have sung that song. We couldn't have joined in. It was a mystery to us why Christians seemed to be so excited about their faith, or why they wanted to go to church, or why they were reading their Bibles. Or why they actually enjoyed meeting with other believers. They had a song in their hearts, but we just couldn't understand it. Then our eyes were opened, and we were able to say, yes, I am a sinner, but Jesus is my Savior. And I've been forgiven, and I'm accepted, and I'm loved. And we realized, didn't we, that this really is the very best news in the whole world. And there was a new spring in our step that wasn't there before. And then our mouths were opened and we began to sing. And that wonderful news that we started singing about is what keeps us going amidst all the pressures and difficulties and discouragements that we face every day. Until the day when we find ourselves with Jesus in a perfect new creation. Now that, friends, is the destiny for all God's people. But what of God's enemies? Well, this is very sobering indeed. Their destiny could not be more different. Verse 14, have a look at it. John sees one like a son of man. That, of course, is the Lord Jesus. He appears in glory, judgment day has come, and it's described here in terms of a harvest, which of course is drawing on imagery 
that Jesus used himself in the Gospels. This is a great promise. And John here uses the picture of grapes in the winepress to describe God's judgment on those who've not repented. Verses 19 and following, have a look at that. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Well, that's a horrific sight, isn't it? It's a a terrible image. It's, It's actually a bloodbath. Now, of course, as always in the book of Revelation, the imagery isn't just something that John dreamed up. No, it's from the Old Testament, and here it comes from Isaiah chapter 63. You don't need to turn to it. But Isaiah 63 is a chapter which praises God for future salvation. And in order to understand this, we really do need to appreciate that context. Because, you see, the people of God in Isaiah's day were being warned of a terrible time when they were going to be overrun by a wicked enemy. But God is going to save them. And if you're being overrun by a terrible enemy, you know perfectly well, don't you, that salvation for you must mean judgment for them. Think, for example, of the 70,000 Christians or thereabouts in North Korea in prison this morning simply for following Jesus. If they're ever going to be saved, their enemies have got to be defeated. It's the only way. And in exactly the same way, judgment and salvation always go together side by side in the Bible. And that's the imagery that's being used here. If God is going to restore a perfect world, well, then those who resist him and spoil that must be judged. Yes, God is patient. He is very patient. But in the end, his patience is going to run out. And those who persist in opposition to him will be excluded. Their destiny is described in extremely um, solemn words in verses 10 and 11. I think these are frightening words, aren't they? It says they're going to be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Now that is really uncomfortable language, isn't it? I don't enjoy saying it any more than I suppose you enjoy hearing it. But we do need to recognize, friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the most loving man who ever lived, spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Yes, this is picture language, but it is picture language that speaks about a terrible reality. So please will you notice, this is really important, notice the contrast between these two destinies. What is the wonder of the new creation according to Revelation 14? 
Well, it's being with the Lamb. It's being in the presence of God. And what is the horror of hell? It's actually being separated from the Lamb and from God the Father and being cut off from the source of everything good forever. And these images are describing the horror of that reality for us. And I know someone will be thinking, but that's just not fair. Well, when you think about it, don't you think the punishment fits the crime? You know, if somebody is determined to live their lives without reference to their maker, then in the end, God is simply giving them what they themselves are determined to have. Some of you will have read the writings of C.S. Lewis, and he often sums these things up very brilliantly. And on this subject, he says this, quote, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And all who are in hell choose it. But of course all of that's in the future. For now there is a long delay. Why the delay? Well, because God doesn't want anyone to perish which leads us to the two heels. You'll find these in verses 6 to 13. The first is an appeal to God's enemies. John sees three angels flying to the ends of the earth with a message from God calling people to repent. These angels are saying, yes, judgment is coming, but in the light of the coming judgment, repent. First angel in verse 7 said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Maybe there's someone here this morning or listening to the tape who has dismissed God in their hearts. Can I ask you, what if it's true? What if it's true that there is a creator who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water? He made everything, but we've lived in his world as if he doesn't exist. We've never bothered to say thank you. We've taken all the gifts he's given us for granted. Verse 7 says, fear God. Now, at the very least, that would mean finding out a little bit more, wouldn't it? In a word, fearing God means repenting and acknowledging your creator rather than created things. And then there's a second angel, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now in the Bible, uh, Babylon is frequently used as a symbol of human beings living in opposition to God. 
the origin of the imagery is actually interesting. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, where sinful humanity said, come, let's build ourselves a city that reaches to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. So that's humanity, isn't it? Rejecting God and glorifying themselves instead. And the result of that, well, it's on the front page of your newspaper every day, isn't it? It's the mess of our world. The world is messed up, isn't it? Self-glorifying. It's adulterous because it's turned from God and it's been completely seduced by Satan's temptations for the most part. But God's messenger says it's fallen, past tense. And he's speaking there about a future event as if it's already happened because it is so certain. Now let me ask you this. If you know that the city that you're living in is about to fall and the message is get out, well, only a fool would stay behind, wouldn't he? I mean, ask the people who couldn't get out of Kabul in time before the Taliban arrived. Well, Babylon is falling. And the message is get out while there is still time and get into the new Jerusalem that is the only city that's going to last forever. It's the only place where you can be safe. And then the third angel speaks of the coming judgment in verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out at full strength into the cup of his wrath. Again, friends, that is an image that comes straight out of the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath. But our God is so gracious. Because with these messages, um, with these warnings, his message to us is, I don't want you or anybody to have to face that bloodbath. So I've sent my son Jesus. I don't want you to have to drink this cup. So my son has willingly drunk it for you. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus was arrested, he prayed, didn't he? And he said, Father, you can do anything. Please take this cup from me. And of course he was talking there, wasn't he, about the cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink on the cross the next day. But still Jesus said, not mine, but yours be done. So Jesus went to the cross and he, he drank that cup down to the dregs so that anybody who trusts in him won't ever have to face it. Yes, there is, friends, a very solemn warning here. But it does come with a longing that there might be repentance. If you feel that God is calling you to do that today, I want to plead with you to do it. Don't put it off. If you do, you might never get round to it. If you don't know what it means, please ask a Christian friend or come and ask me afterwards. But then there's another appeal. 
an appeal to the people of God, facing huge pressure, as many people were in the first century. They must have been being tempted to think, you know, why not just give in? Why not just go with the flow and bow before the image of the emperor just like everybody else? Well, they've been reminded of these two destinies. And the appeal for them is in verse 12. Please look at it. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, that's Christians, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. What a huge encouragement that must have been for those first century believers. And what a huge encouragement it is today to persecuted Christians, for whom the book of Revelation is actually almost like looking in a mirror of their daily lives. But you see, it's not only for them. This is a word to us who live relatively ordinary lives. Because in case you haven't realized it, behind every single decision we make to go the way of Jesus or not to go the way of Jesus, there is a spiritual battle raging in the background. For some of us, the decisions that we make will be extremely costly. For example, there might come a time when you are called to say no to a relationship with someone that you love very much. But you know it's not God's way. And in that moment, you might find yourself thinking, well, this decision actually means death to my marriage prospects. Or maybe you have a growing sense that God wants you to do something with your life which the world considers to be a total waste of time. Your family says, you know, you could do so much better. But you know it's God's way. You also know that, humanly speaking, it means death to your reputation and to any other ambitions you might have had for your life. Well, friends, behind every single one of those decisions... There is this tremendous cosmic battle going on behind the scenes. And in light of the two destinies that are set out before us in this chapter, the message is, keep going, patient endurance, faithfulness to Jesus is never stupid. Why not? Because one day, will be with the Lamb and all God's people in a redeemed, perfect world with none of the things that trouble us today. And when we get there, we will realize with breathtaking clarity that every single sacrifice we ever made for Jesus really was worth it. Father, thank you for these amazing images in the book of Revelation that help us to think about what's really happening behind the scenes.
for anyone listening this morning who's been living their lives without reference to you, please open their eyes to see their need to repent. And for those of us who feel the pressures of living in an anti-God culture, please give us grace to keep on following the Lord and to keep on encouraging one another to do the same. And all these things we ask for Christ our Saviour's sake.